I'm reading from Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Pray with me. Father, this psalm is our prayer this morning. We praise you for how you continue to reveal truth to us through your word. May our souls be revived our minds granted wisdom, and our hearts infused with joy. Bless Pastor Ryan as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ community. If you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning. One of my favorite places to visit in Idaho Falls is the Department of Motor Vehicles. (laughs) Now I know the stereotype, I know your initial gut reaction, we hear the laughs right now, but if you have lived in other places, you will come to appreciate the one here in Idaho Falls a lot more. Because at least from my personal experience, things have been really easy, really efficient at this DMV compared to others. So what happens is you move to Idaho Falls, you have to eventually go in there, and every single lady is smiling at you. Might be a slight exaggeration, right? But you start the process of getting an Idaho driver's license. And at some point, they ask you this question. Do you want to be an organ donor? And you respond with a yes or no, and life goes on. And if you respond with a yes, other than a small little red heart on your physical license, nothing else has changed. Is that your understanding of Christianity this morning? You said yes once, but it doesn't really affect any part of your day-to-day life. To the unbeliever who might be here with us this morning, is this your understanding of Christianity? Is this how you have heard someone possibly explain the good news of Christ to you? You say yes to the gospel, and life goes on, except you now have a get-out-of-jail-free card. I want to humbly but firmly tell you that that is not Christianity. That is not what we understand it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. No, the gospel, this good news concerning Christ was that he was sent into the world to rescue and redeem a sinful people. And he sufficiently did so through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, so that all who place their faith in him, who recognize this good news and respond not with just a DMV type yes, but with their whole hearts and mind understanding that God has done a work in them so that they desire to live for him, then I would say that that person is a Christian, truly redeemed by the blood of Christ and therefore will live for him as long as God gives them breath to breathe in this world and even after into eternity. That's Christianity. That's the good news that we come together to celebrate 
That's what we see in the scriptures, and that's in part of what I see Paul trying to correct in this section of Romans. It's not just a single yes, but it's a day-by-day new life. So he begins by outlining this section in chapter 6. You remember in the earlier chapters, he's established that all have sinned before God, Jew and Gentile alike, and therefore deserve God's righteous judgment. But what he's telling them now in chapter 6 is they they should embrace their new life in Christ. Even though sin is dreadful, it is truly horrific as we're going to come to see, God's grace is sufficient to cover over all sin. And so Paul asks the question, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? What's he saying there? He's saying, why can't I just keep living how I was, Paul? You just told me that it's absolutely wonderful that God's grace covers all these sins. Let me live my way and satisfy my sinful flesh. God's grace will cover it, right? And Paul responds, by no means. You don't understand the nature of God's grace at all, the severity of sin, or the nature of your new life in Christ. So real quick, just to apply this to our hearts and our minds, just a quick point of application. Are you tempted to knowingly sin because you know God will forgive you? Are you wrestling with something right now, or this past week, or this past month? Are you tempted to knowingly sin because you know God will forgive you? Are you flirting with sin? Then look to the cross. Remind yourself once more why the perfect Son of God had to come and die for you, to die for your sins. It's not a thing to take lightly or to flirt with. So Paul establishes all of this, as Jeff has shown us the past few weeks, and he wants us to see that we are no longer slaves to sin, But now we are slaves to God. We are slaves to righteousness. Then we come to Romans 7 as he's fleshing out this new life, and he's going to answer this really important question of, what about the law? What do we do with it? How does this apply to us? Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Since I'm speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then, if she is married to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused to the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. Would you pray with me? Father, we as your church are gathered here to worship you in spirit and in truth and to worship you in how we sit under your word. So help us to sit under it. Help us to understand what this new covenant life entails. Help us to recognize how the law applies to our life. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. The main point of our passage is as follows. In Christ we have died to the law, and we have been raised to new life. If you're taking notes, there's an outline in the bulletin that you can follow along with. In Christ we have died to the law, And we have been raised to new life. This is straightforward. And while we're dealing with the law, in particular, in this section, Paul's overarching theme in chapters 6 through 8 
is for us to understand and to comprehend what this new life actually looks like and entails. So for our time today, we're going to flesh out that main point in three ways. What does it mean that we have died to the law? What does it mean that we have been raised to new life? And what does it mean that we are now in Christ? First is this, we have died to the law. Paul wants the saints in Rome to understand their relationship to the law. And the first way he explains it is through death. He says, we have died to the law. Look back at verse 2. For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then, if she is married to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. The picture in this illustration is clear. It doesn't have to be dissected piece by piece. Paul's telling them that they were married to the law, but now in Christ that husband has died and they have a new husband, Jesus Christ. And he explains what this practically means. Look down at verse 5. For when we were in the flesh before Christ, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us. There are two things that I think we have to see here. Two subpoints to point number one. I tricked you with just three points. There's some subpoints here, all right? What sin does to the law and our proclivity to live under the law. First is this what sin does to the law? Sin radically distorts the law. I don't want to steal Jeff's thunder from next week, but sin radically distorts everything that is good in the law. And the example here is the law. It radically distorts everything that's good overall. God's law is a revelation of himself, holy, just, good. Yet sin takes that and makes it a weapon. It seeks to enslave those who want to follow the law by constantly prodding them to break the law. That's his example of coveting that's coming next week. So Paul's going to go on and tell us that the law is absolutely not sin, but that sin uses it and abuses it to bring about more sin in each of our lives. So as Christians, we have to hold this view in tension. The law is good. We aren't under the old covenant, but we are informed by the Old Testament and the scriptures as a whole, and we learn what the progress of revelation means and how Christ fulfilled the law. So therefore, I want to say clearly, we aren't under it as Israel was, but we still adhere to much of it because it is the revelation of God. So we hold on to that side while recognizing it recognizing that it, the law, combined with our sinful nature, only produces more sin. The law could never save Israel. They couldn't keep it. They had to have a new covenant head, no longer to be in Adam, but now to be in Christ. But each of us have experienced what sin does to the law before coming to Christ. As a child, we hear, don't step on the grass. Don't jump in that mud puddle. Don't put that bead up your nose. And what do we want to do? That very thing. We see this in adults. Let's not deceive ourselves as well. We see this in adults who in their sin, they hear God's universal law come to them, and they what? They rebel against it. They are aggravated by it. They want to break it. In our sinful disposition before being in Christ, the law is warped so that we desire to sin all the more when placed under its stipulations. And what is the outcome of those still living under the law and sin? Look at verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear 
fruit for death. It does not matter how nice someone is. It does not matter the good works that someone does. It does not matter how much money they, do, they donate to a good cause. Apart from knowing Christ and having experienced a new birth, like Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that person is in the flesh. And they are bearing fruit for death. So think about this, brothers and sisters, as you pray for coworkers, as you think about family and friends, as you're praying for boldness to share the gospel, keep this in mind when you evangelize the lost. Apart from God doing a work in their hearts, they are bearing fruit for death. So that's the first thing. The second thing where I want to spend a little bit more time is our proclivity to live under the law. Second subpoint: our proclivity to live under the law. You might be here and you're thinking, well, yes, these Jews and Gentiles had to wrestle with this, Ryan, but I'm a Christian and I don't feel tempted to live under the law. Well, friends, just like our fear of man can be subtle and work its way into our hearts when we least expect it, so too we can fall back into living under the law when we're not on guard against it, not actively preaching the truth of Christ to ourselves. The reality, friends, is there are many Christians today who still put themselves under the law. It can look like this. You have come to faith in Christ. You have trusted in him for salvation. You're following after him, and then you sin. You mess up. Maybe it's a big sin. And you wonder, was I really a Christian? This was me for many years as I would constantly understand myself to have fallen away in my early teenage years and I needed to rededicate my life to the Lord. So camp experience after camp experience, this is what happened. I'd come back down to the front or I would ask Jesus back into my heart. That's not what we see in the scriptures. Paul's going to outline in the rest of Romans 7 in a very personal way while also painting a bigger picture overall how we still struggle and we fight with sin in our lives. We're going to see that next week. But remember what he said clearly in chapter 6, verse 14. You are not under the law, but under grace. So what do we do? What did I do? We become uncertain of our salvation. We lose our assurance of faith and we end up doubting whether we are a Christian at all. Maybe others even begin to wonder that about us. Were they really a believer. What's happened here? Now, I do want to acknowledge that there are false professions of faith. We need to wrestle with that in the church as well. But there are also Christians who struggle with assurance of faith, and that's what I'm trying to hit on here. So what has happened to the one who questions if they, if they are saved when they sin? They have completely misunderstood their relationship to Christ, and they have put themselves back under the law. A Christian should never do that. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, it does not matter how deeply, how violently you may sin as a believer, you should never come again under condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus this morning. Again, don't misunderstand this and become antinomian. I'm not talking about a license to sin because grace abounds, therefore it doesn't matter what you do or say. No, that's another misunderstanding of the law. I'm talking about recognizing how the law, as used by sin, has no hold over you. We aren't anti-law, and we aren't bound by the law. We must understand the difference in this Christian life. But how else do we come under the law? Let me ask you this question this morning. Are you a frustrated Christian? Are you frustrated in your Christian walk? Maybe you recognize that you don't pray as often as you should. 
You don't read the scriptures as much as you see others doing. You recognize areas of sin in your life that you still fall short and you're wrestling with. Are you frustrated? Good. I think it's good. A frustrated Christian is a sign of new life, of the new birth. Something has changed within you where you hate sin and you desire to grow day by day into the image of Christ. Praise God for that. But for those of us who are frustrated, we must be careful not to fall under the law as well. Because we read about the saints of old in early church history. We read about this amazing hall of faith in Hebrews 11 as they shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the raging of fire and they were tortured and not accepting release so they may gain a better resurrection. We then compare ourselves to them and to others in the church and we think I'm nowhere near them. I'm nowhere near that level of maturity. So again, we begin to think, well, am I a Christian? We place ourselves under the law once more. And here is what we must realize. It is good and right to test ourselves in light of Scripture, to see where we are falling short. But that doesn't mean you have no salvation when falling short. It very well may just mean you're a poor Christian, a Christian who needs to mature, but a Christian nonetheless. So Paul is taking pains to show us that we have a new husband. We're no longer in the marriage to the law, but are now married to Christ. And as we come to see, this changes everything. But time and time again, we have seen in Romans that salvation is all of God. And we have to also see that our sanctification is all of God. Our day-by-day growth is all of God. This is why we often sing, I won't be formed by feelings. I hold fast to what is true. Hold fast, brothers and sisters, to that which is true. Because when we incessantly look at ourselves and our failings instead of to Christ, we run the risk of putting ourselves back under the law. Hold fast to what is true of you in Christ. We have died to the law, brothers and sisters. Let us then live in that reality. Let us live in light of our new life. This brings us to our second truth this morning. We have been raised to new life. We have been raised to new life. I want us to see from verse 6 of our passage and two other supporting passages what it means that we have new life, and in particular, new covenant life. Look down with me at verse 6 of Romans 7. But now we have been released from the law, since we have died to what held us, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. 2 Corinthians 3 has the closest parallel in language to this. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So in these two verses, we see that we have been released from the law, and that this new covenant is not of the letter, not of the law, but of the Spirit. And one more verse that we have referenced throughout our study of Romans, Jeremiah 31. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. What does new covenant life entail for us? Well, no longer is the law external, written on tablets of stone, but now it is internal, written on our hearts. 
knowing God then is an internal experience as well. What grounds this statement? Right there at the end of Jeremiah, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. So in this new covenant, we are forgiven. We can know God and we can love God and this is the new life that we have been raised to. Paul wants the Roman church and through the Spirit by us as well to see this. Look back at the start of verse 6. What does he say there? He says, but now. There is a change, a deliverance, a release. This is how it was for you. This is how it now is for you. But now we may serve in the newness of the Spirit. Elsewhere throughout the Scriptures, it'll say that we walk in the Spirit. We pray in the Spirit. And here we serve in the Spirit. In other words, now that we, new covenant believers, have the Holy Spirit, it is truly a new life that we experience. Day by day, walking with God, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, being conformed into the image of Christ, hating sin and taking it seriously, all the while reminding ourselves of what the cross accomplished until either Christ comes back or we go to be with him. I can't think of a better description of this new life than in Colossians 3. Look at these new covenant realities that are ours. They are ours. Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. So if you have been raised with Christ, if this is true of you, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now, notice that language again, but now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Think about that statement. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. So notice that similar language that we've been seeing in Romans. You died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. Put to death what belongs to that nature. Put on your new self. Is that true of you this morning? Is this the experience that you know of? Are you living in it? You might be here, as I said earlier, and you are not a Christian. A family member or a friend invited you, and here I am telling you that you can have new life. But you could easily say back to me, I like my life. I don't see a reason for a new one. Well, friend, as I mentioned earlier, the heart of Christianity is that you must be made new. You must be made new, for in and of ourselves we can have no hope to stand before God. We cannot be justified before God, because the Bible tells us that all have sinned. It puts us on the same playing field. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, so you need a new heart, and you need to be found in Christ on that last day. So if you aren't a believer, we hope that you keep coming back. We want to keep talking with you, but I'm going to ask you to write down one Bible verse, and I want you to think on it over this week. There's nothing wrong with thinking about one Bible verse, right? That verse is John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, 
so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That everlasting life is held out to you this morning, friend. Think on what that means. And as I said before, though, this is not an organ donor type of yes. When you come to Jesus, he is Lord over all of your life. So think on that verse. Come back and talk to us. We'd be glad to explain to you more about Christianity. The third is this. We are united to Christ. We are united to Christ, and this affects every part of our everyday lives. That's what we have to see. Verse 4 is the main point of this section, and really what the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate about the law, the new covenant, and our union with Christ. Look with me at verse 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who is raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul draws a summation from his illustration in the first three verses, and this is where our main point that I stated earlier, and really our three uh, supporting points, this is where all of it is grounded. Therefore, you were put to death, and you were raised from the dead. Look at this union language that we see in verse 4. You were put to death through the body of Christ. You belong to another. You belong to him, he says. Throughout the book of Romans, Justification by faith is the resounding cry of this letter. Nothing you can do justifies you or saves you. It is only by faith, only by a trusting reception of the work of Christ that we can be justified before God. But here, in chapters 6, 7, and 8, he's making a similar but slightly different point. And it is this. Just as justification by obedience to the law is impossible so is sanctification by obedience to the law. Just as justification by obedience to the law is impossible, so is sanctification by obedience to the law. He's saying this, obedience to the law cannot justify you, and Paul's arguing here, it cannot sanctify you. This is big for us to understand. So you can say, I get, Ryan, that my justification is by grace through faith. I get that. But even afterwards, doesn't obedience to the law make my sanctification take place? And the answer is no. Your sanctification is also brought about because of your faith in Christ and in particular your union with Christ. This is an important doctrine that the Christian must know and rest in and it's what's undergirding all of 7 and 8. The Christian is united with Christ. We are now in Christ. We are now married to him. All the language is communicating the same truth here. It is the power of the indwelling spirit that has brought about new life and also grows us in the new life. So the Spirit brings about new life, causes that seed to grow, but not only does it just cause it to sprout up, it causes it to to grow into maturity as well. But this is the point at the end of verse 4. Did you see what he said? You belong to him who is raised from the dead in order that you might bear fruit for God. Under the law and in our flesh, as I said earlier, we bear fruit for death. But now, united to Christ, we bear fruit for God. Our good works in Christ are bearing fruit for him, our evidences of both his work in our life and his kingdom at work in this world. We now bear fruit for God. So what Paul is saying is this. There are three ways that people relate to the law. First is legalistic. We live under the law, and we try to keep it with every ounce that we have, and sin reminds us that we can't, and so we constantly want to break it. Scriptures are saying don't do that. Second way is that we throw out the law altogether. We can live however we want because God's grace will cover us. 
And Paul's saying, it's not what I'm saying either. Yes, God's grace is sufficient, but we're not to be antinomian or anti-law. We don't turn liberty into license. Don't do that as well. Rather, what he's saying in these chapters is that in our new life, we need to recognize that we have a law-fulfilling freedom found in Christ. We have a law-fulfilling freedom found in Christ. We are, in Christ, a law-fulfilling free people. So we rejoice in our freedom from the law to give us justification and sanctification, and we also rejoice in our freedom in Christ to fulfill the law. It's this beautiful middle ground that we must fight to keep. We delight in the law as the revelation of God's will, but we recognize that the power to fulfill it is not in the law, but in the Spirit. Therefore, legalists fear the law, and they're in bondage to it. Antinomians hate the law, and they repudiate it. But law-abiding free people love the law and fulfill it in Christ. But for that reality that we are in Christ, that brings about some very important truths that we must grasp. As Jeff said last week so well, we must count our salvation to be true. And I'm arguing here that we must do the same with our union with Christ. So allow me to give you some brief conclusions and benefits of our union with Christ. There are many that we could say, but I want to focus on a few. First is this. As I said earlier, there is no condemnation for us. There is no condemnation for you, brother or sister, if you know Christ. We have to grasp this truth in our heart and our mind. Paul uses a marriage metaphor in the first three verses, and so let me just expound on that metaphor. For you to feel condemned by the law, or to live as if under the law, is like being the wife who still feels afraid of her first husband, whom she has been separated by death from. It makes no sense. You might feel and think certain things. I am so unworthy of Christ. I am such a sinner. I feel that I am such a failure. You might truly feel those things, but you must not allow yourself to come back under condemnation. You cannot think of it in terms of your lack of faithfulness to Christ. Rather, you must always think of it in terms of Christ's faithfulness to you. This means, practically speaking, that there shouldn't be a perpetually miserable or unhappy Christian. Notice the word perpetually there. This is not our constant state of mind or our constant disposition. Why? Because of our union with Christ. We must understand this. Why would you be perpetually miserable or unhappy if there's no condemnation for you? It does not make sense. So we must look at our new husband, look to Christ and smile in his face in spite of us being what we are. And we must look and see him smiling at us though we are what we are. Second is this, we are subject to him. Just as we were controlled by the law, we were subject to the law, we were married to the law, so now the same to Christ. We must recognize and live out this position. Being one flesh with Christ, Paul can mention that this is a mystery in Ephesians. We can now glory in the things of God, and we desire that we live unto him all of our days. And he helps us to do so. So day by day and week by week, we have the gospel in our hearts and our minds. We're reminding ourselves of truth. We seek to have the mind of Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. We seek to wake up and live as people who belong to his kingdom. We are subject to him. Third is this, it is a permanent union. It is a permanent union. Paul tells us that the law has died and so has our marriage to it. But the reality is that Christ shall not die again. 
Romans 6, 9, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. And if you are found in him, if you know him, then death no longer rules over you. It is as Pastor Rick mentioned yesterday at the funeral of Kermit Gill, a longtime member here, that death is our enemy. But in Christ, death has been defeated. And if you are found in Christ, it has been defeated by you. So you might die physically, but you spiritually will be with Christ for forever. Praise God. This is a permanent union. Fourth is this. We have his care and protection. Paul tells the Ephesians when describing marriage that in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. In our union with Christ, we are cared for, protected, loved, nourished into maturity, nourished into holiness and the love that he calls us to. Think about this. He gives us his name. We are Christians. We can look to him for all things. He sees and cares for us. As Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, He provides for us physically. He spiritually grows us. He plans all of our days. How else does he care for us? If you're struggling with assurance of faith, I recommend you write down Jude 24, which says, Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. It is Christ's joy to protect you from stumbling, brother or sister to nourish us into maturity, to one day present us in the presence of glory without blemish and without fault. It's his joy, brothers and sisters. You are his joy. I pray that we would glory all the more in this doctrine. And lastly is this, we shall reign with him. We shall reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth because of our union with Christ. This is incredible to think about. But one day the name Christian won't be despised by the culture and all who hate God. On Thursday morning, I meet with upperclassmen guys at Chick-fil-A at 645, and we study the Bible. They show up early, they read the Bible with me, and I buy them breakfast. It's going great. Since we're going through 1 Corinthians, I keep reminding them of this truth. This is what the world thinks of you guys. This is what the wisdom of the world says about you. You're a fool. That's what they think. Oh, in our postmodern society, it's very easy to say that you're a Christian, and they will say, that's great, you do you, as long as you don't talk about it much, or actually have a faith that affects your day-to-day life, actually have a faith that's lived out. But then what do they do when they really start to talk to you? When they see that your faith actually does affect your day-to-day life, and you hold these antiquated views, you believe in a man who supposedly did miracles. You believe in a man who died Great, everybody's died in the past. Oh, he came back to life. So you believe in a fairy tale. Paul tells the Corinthians time and time again, the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world, foolishness to those who are perishing. And so I tell these young men, you live out this faith, you follow this Jesus Christ, in the world's eyes you'll be a fool. Can you count the cost? And what Paul is saying here is that one day, Those who are called fools in this life will be found out to have not been actually fools at all. For we who know God and love God will be ruling and reigning with him forever. We haven't gotten to it yet on Thursday morning, but he's going to tell us in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, do you not know that the saints, us Christians, will judge the world? We'll even judge angels. 
need Jeff to tell us what that means next week. Because of the position and the status of the Son, we will, in our union, reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth to the praise of his glory. That's your reality if you know Christ. So Christ community, I pray that we would love God, we would love others, that we would preach the gospel to ourselves day by day and to others, that we would know what it means as well, that we are united to Christ. That we would resist that urge to put ourselves back under the law, that we would rest in his grace instead, that we would live in the freedom of our new life, knowing, comprehending, grasping, loving, counting what it means to be united to him and praising him that he will never cast us out. This is our new covenant life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word, which goes out and never returns void. Father, thank you that you have brought about new life for so many in this room. We understand that there's probably many who don't know you as well. So I pray that they would think simply on John 3.16. Pray that you by your spirit would cause new life to take place even now. But Father, help us to understand that it wasn't just a a one-time yes. Help us to understand what it means to live day by day as someone who is united to you, united to Jesus Christ. Help us not to put ourselves under the law, recognize that we have died to it. Help us to recognize this new life and help us to glory all the more in our union with Jesus Christ. We love you. We praise you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.